Over this series, we hear deeply personal stories about how to deal with the trauma of the past and its consequences on the family, society and countries as time passes. Is it possible to achieve closure? And how does one turn the page? Today we hear the tragic story that happened to an extraordinary woman. I'm going to let her introduce herself. Suffice to say, her family tragedy took her to the Gambian Truth, Reconciliation and Reparations Commission in search of answers after her father's disappearance. Our conversation follows Nana Jo's journey from trauma into creating something healing for the future with the creation of the Memory House, a centre that makes sure the lessons from the past are not forgotten and so can be avoided in the future. Just to explain, the conversations I'm trying to have are about the search for truth and its mm-hmm. importance and, and the effects of denial. And I've grown up in Britain where then there's only ever been a certain amount of truth told about our colonial past, one side mm-hmm. of the story. Mm-hmm. So I'm hoping by looking at the experiences of other countries who've dared to search and face the truth that the mm-hmm. UK may one day be courageous enough to attempt the same. But Nana Jo, you, you have had much of your adult life on a tragic search for truth. Do you mind telling, introducing yourself and telling us your family's story? So my name is Nana Jo Ndao. I am the founder of the African Network Against Extrajudicial Killings and Enforced Disappearances. And I am also a human rights activist, a storyteller, and a uh, gender equality specialist, always trying to work on projects that focus on women's empowerment. Unfortunately, much of my adult life as a human rights activist has been tied to a personal tragedy, the enforced disappearance and alleged extrajudicial killing of my father so in now, 2013 yes he was a gambian uh, a gambian dissident according to our research and information that we've received um you know uh, publicly and also um, privately um this was done by the junglers uh, who were a hit squad and it was on uh, direct orders of Yaya Jami, the former dictator of the Gambia. You called him a dissident just now. Is that yes, a- dissident because he wasn't part of a political party per se. He wasn't a journalist. He was, I mean, he was just vocal and also just someone who was who had many hidden talents. And he was like, wherever I can help, I will help, even if it means that. It, I have to stuff to stuff envelopes. Then, if that's what I can do, I would do so. That's why I use the term dissident in the sense that he just was someone who pushed back against the dictatorship through various means by supporting others, by discussing, by going around, uh, making noise about this. So that's why I say dissident. I heard that he he was told that he was on a list in the Gambia and that he actually decided he had to leave the Gambia. But you thought that he had gone on a business trip. Would you mind just replaying the first um, week or two if it's not too much? When he was told that he was on a list, that was another time. That was way before, and that's when he exiled, he went into exile. So at the time of his disappearance, he was actually living in exile. And he, um, as far as we were concerned, was going on a business trip to Dakar in Senegal. That's essentially the last we heard of. Because once he was there, 
yeah we we never heard from him again what effect did that have on you to just have him disappear without any idea of what had happened it was really torture because it was just replaying the last time you'd spoken what you could have done or what you haven't done or what you're not doing you're not sure if you you make too much noise because if you do would it have an impact on that person? Because obviously you're thinking that the person is still alive. People will ask you, you know, people will say, I haven't seen your dad in a while. And I was like, okay, I haven't seen him either. There's just so much, um, and it's very difficult to explain it. It's kind of this loss that you cannot really explain. It's, it's a loss, but it's, you don't, you haven't, you've been, you, you haven't had the chance, the opportunity of go through, of rituals around a loss and grieving and stuff. I mean, I don't care what religion, your background, anything. As human beings, we all grieve. That's a natural, it's a right, right? And we, you don't have that. And so it's kind of constantly then questioning around, there's this question mark around this specific event in your life that you're just finding very, very difficult to discuss. And obviously, in this case, the truth was was whether your dad was alive or not, and what had happened to him. How did you cope with that search? How did you begin to search for him? We um, got a lot of uh, support, actually, from Amnesty International, the Red Cross as well, um, trying to go through the networks and to get answers, and also my support system consisted of like friends and family who were really just really concerned and trying so that's how we went about it but you know when you say the truth it's the truth according to someone else you're never really getting the truth right because it's not like we have like proper like facts from an investigation from like a judicial investigation like this is what happened this was at x time where this person was that is you recollecting information based on what other people are saying and you know how people's memories can be very tricky but also how people will share specific information or bend the truth depending on their involvement or not if you say truth but i say to me i'm like i don't call it truth i say it's information it's because for me truth would be like facts that you would have a judicial investigation with you know police officers of who would have been like xyz stuff it might sound very very disempowering. I can't imagine how desperate that must feel. How much information did you manage to uncover before the TRRC? I mean, there was already a lot of information out there, but because it's not official information, you still have your hopes up. Because you'll do anything to hang on to hope. Yeah. And so you say, okay, maybe they're saying that, but they might be wrong. Or I think the part that people really forget about it. It's not just the search for the truth as well. It's kind of be being giving like remains back for you yeah. to be like, okay, now we can do this. We can lay this person to rest. Um, we've done our part. And that also you've been robbed of that. And which means that even when you know the so-called truth, you sort of are still mourning because you're like, well, but I haven't done that part either. So the um, Commonwealth War Graves Commission in Britain uh, is only now telling families in East Africa about where the African soldiers who fought in World War One and Two are buried. They didn't tell them up till now. How vital do you think it is to know the place 
or have a chance to bury in order to move on. It's not just, I wouldn't even say vital, I'll just say it's just part of what makes us human beings. It doesn't matter what the, that your background, your culture, your age, that we all have a ritual around losing someone. And usually part of that ritual are the remains. It's one way or another way of sending off I think when you're being robbed of that, it's also, it's very dehumanizing. It's almost saying, you know, essentially you're saying that person wasn't worth it. They become invisible, you're left with nothing. Being robbed of that, it's really, it's a, I, it's an act of torture. So, and did you ever get to know where your father died? Some of the um, individuals that were involved spoke during the truth commission and there's information that was shared but the remains are still not being returned to us because it's not like we can go as non-judicial units or individuals to just go in and just say okay we're just going to exhume so again even if they've said it it's not like you've had an institution who's gone and said yes we've identified and this is this and it's just it's been said well that's that brings up an impression i got of the t the gambian t RRC that actually it was a top-down process that you're the families but you didn't get any say on what you would have liked its remit to be is that the case when it was set up how much consultation did it have with the families and what they hoped to get from the TRC there were consultations after they'd come up with the whole plan they, they it was very clear what they were trying to get out of this and then once it had been all put together, um, I mean, that's how I see it. Then that's when they consulted, right? It wasn't as they are putting it together. It's, and I feel like it was also very much in a sense to be able to control the process, but also when it was presented, it was very much, this is the only option. So that I found was very frustrating because it was like, well, if I'm seeking judicial remedy and then I take part in this, it's going to have an impact on my judicial remedy. It was presented as the only avenue for redress. And so who do you think it was for, the TRC? What do you think? You said it had very clear agenda. What, what was the agenda and who was that for? It was, I mean, definitely to ensure that the people of the Gambia knew what had happened because a lot of people were still in denial. I think it was put in a way where, whereby it was like, as a people, that's how we we're going to move forward. Emphasize on forgiveness kind of bundled up with reconciliation, which are two separate things. You know, you can forgive, but you can still want to make people accountable. Yeah, I think it was it was for the Gambians, but it, I, I didn't feel like it was done in a way where it felt like it was with the Gambians. Does it make sense? Absolutely. Did what you discovered at the TRC allow any sense of closure for you or your family or any other families that were testifying? I mean, what, what, what is it that you call closure, right? I personally, my experience has been more traumatic than anything, especially, I mean, I, I do recall like at some point that the, the TRC team had like a camera crew and they were going around mass graves and taken by one of the individuals involved. And there was no prep prior to that, right? They were only thinking about how they're trying to show, oh, we're doing something. And so the, the victims, the families, were getting calls about this happening on TV, which was a complete and utter shock for them. You know, they, they haven't heard about this. They haven't discussed this. For many people, there's very little understanding of like 
branding and stuff. And I think something that is really, really very personal is suffering. It's so personal and all of a sudden the thing that causes your suffering is literally on TV for the entire nation to see and people you getting calls from third parties. And like you say, it's personal and also very private. It should be. Absolutely. So my experience overall is that they definitely could have done more work in terms of having the victim centered and gender sensitive approach. It almost felt sometimes like it was a tick box exercise. But then again, there were also a lot of things that they did that I find absolutely remarkable how it was televised or available on radio, that it absolutely was amazing and they made sure there were translations. Well, what I find amazing is that from the work that you've done since is you set up a different model which seems to be very sensitive to the victim's perspective with the memory house. Could you describe the memory house? Yeah, um, so memory house uh, is a museum and education center. It's um, a commemoration site for the forcibly disappeared, the families, the loved ones of the forcibly disappeared and also those extrajudicially killed. That That's what it's primarily for. And you really have these people who've always been in the shadows, who've been made invisible, who've been overlooked, who literally have their portraits out there and are telling their stories, right? that feeling of being seen, it's so important to be able to carry on. It's a space that to create that sense of belonging, that sense of center. And, and, you, yeah. and, and you mentioned it's also a place to mourn and remember. Absolutely, because obviously you've been robbed of certain things. Just a reminder of the humanity of these people and a reminder of what happened just to make sure that also you know what remembering we just don't want to repeat it's a different history that it tells isn't it and you've you've made a a grassroots narrative and history is is that right have i got the right impression it is and it's not about hatred it's not about resentment not at all it's just about what has been taken away from me as an individual who's suffered human rights violations and how I feel and so it creates this sense of empathy as well for others and how we should connect as human beings. Could you describe about personal objects that are left from those that have disappeared that are put up as an exhibition and what you left what you decided to put for your father? So many of the victims are Muslim and in the Islam that's practiced in Gambia and Gambia they essentially once the person is no more, you get rid of the items, you get rid of all the items, everything. And so it was incredibly powerful that some still had hung on to like a few things like, okay, I have this, I have that. And the act of giving that to putting that out there, it, it not only meant I trust you to do justice to this, to, but also I want this to be a way of showing that, hey, this person existed and this is how we're telling that person's story. There's a human being, there's somebody and they're not there. So I'm having to resort to this to tell you, but also for them sharing that is an incredible act of, is it, I feel it's selfless and an act of kindness because they're saying, 
I'm not going to make use of this. I'm putting it out there because I want to teach the next generation. I want to create this connection between my generation, the next generation and the generation after and so on. I, for my father, I chose his passport, one of his um, expired passports, because I, th- I, I felt that it very much told his story in a sense, because you have all these visas and these entry stamps and stuff that showed how he really traveled and explored and gone outside the world and was open, just open-minded. And also, I just thought, it, for me, I thought it was incredible when you see like all these places he'd been to end of the 60s, early 70s, when it's, I mean, today it's so easy to travel. Back then it wasn't. By doing that as well, you are making the invisible visible and you're not covering it up. That history cannot be covered up, um, which I suppose is what happens when, or is their motive behind disappearances. Is that the case? Yes, you make the invisible very much visible. I mean, it's like, how are you going to ignore that? I am showing you something that belongs to this person and I'm telling you a story behind the story, which then you're realizing, oh, I'm not that different from that person. If you see someone who had like a wallet or someone who traveled or so, all these things that as human beings, we do one way, we, we do or have one or the other, right? So you kind of connect and realize, oof, the whole point of his forced disappearances or why they, you know, air quote, work so well is because they make people invisible. And so when you put it out there, you're saying this is the person might not be here anymore, but you're, this is what happened. We will not erase it. It's, it's incredibly powerful. And you spoke about the younger generation, how all they have grown up knowing is a dictatorship and that in some ways they needed to unlearn the dictatorship and this incredible exhibition that the young worked on and that you trained them for called We Are Not Done. Can, can you explain what, what the process of that was? In, uh, I mean, it was a 22 year dictatorship, right? Some people were born during that time. And so these young people, that's all they've ever known. Is it to the point where the rule of law or respect for human rights is a foreign concept to them. You know, speaking to people we work with, young women who've said, you know, I thought that was just the norm. That was normal, right? You know, we can't talk about certain things. The president says this, and so that's how it goes. And critical thinking is stifled. They don't, they're not really thinking from themselves. They're just doing what they're told to do. So you're having to unlearn, unpack all of that. And I think one of the most telling moments of like, we organized this workshop where we were training these young women to be storytellers using their mobile phones. Cause you know, you do what you can with what you have and they don't have access to these fancy cameras and stuff. And I believe also it's not just about the, the equipment. So they took their mobile phones and taken them when we were going through like dictatorship, human rights violation stuff. The next day, one of them came back and was like, hang on a second. This is what happened to me when she was nine or 10, she was made to, you know, in a nutshell was forced labor by Yaya Jami and these people with her class. And she hadn't realized that this was forced labor until she had taken part in this workshop that she had been victimized and she'd made to work in a, you know, on a farm 
under the sun harvesting harvesting these cashew nuts and, and that was her school trip and she thought that was normal i mean it was just it, it had been presented to them as a school trip and then they got there and essentially they were told until you've done xyz you won't get food they were tricked and then they got there and these are school children and she only at 19 realized after two days of taking part in the workshop she had actually been victimized so that tells you this concept of human rights what human rights are respect for human rights wasn't there and this is someone who was studying journalism that's shocking and the trc and the memory house together are trying to present a, a different moral and ethical environment presumably i heard that you gave them cameras and they went off and recorded the stories of the families that didn't um testify at the truth commission maybe because they weren't asked to or they were feeling more private and you describe yourself as a storyteller do you think if done sensitively in the right way storytelling is important i mean it's not just important i think it's intrinsic to us as the human race we tell stories via different means but we we share we we from generation to generation and so i think this is how you also learn it gives you a sense as a people as a as an individual i think it's it's incredibly powerful and and so that's actually one of the reasons as well that they try to erase that when they want to stay in power right they will erase it through maybe burning books banning books banning certain type of activities or if you partake in them it always has to just be a certain way because that's then it becomes propaganda right but i think it's because it's incredibly powerful i don't i one of the things um in britain is the the call to decolonize the curriculum and that's as uh, one story the official narrative of colonialism as taught by the powers that be is of a glorious empire but the stories going on at home from the multiracial society that we now live in and people coming from across that empire back to this country are very different what how important do you think that grassroots history and storytelling process is i mean it's all about who tells the story that's essentially the answer to your question, who is telling the story? You would tell the story based on, you know, what you're trying to achieve as well. And so when it's those in power who tell the story and they're trying to achieve a certain thing, they tell it in a way where, well, let's tell the story so we don't have to pay reparations or we don't have to return certain items that we've taken um, violently. <laughs> um, we, you know, it's, it's all about who tells the story and so when you have different groups who come and tell the story and chat is that you can't just be like no this is the official version it's like mm, no because you have all these different groups who are telling you like this is what happened and so how are you going to go on with that false narrative right or that narrative that's been put together to fit, fit your purposes there's this uh this book that i think is incredibly powerful that I'm reading is called africa is not a country and it's so spot on and it's just essentially the big lie about all these things about we're used to dehumanize to control people 
And that works so well that today you have people, you still have certain countries, well, many, that are still reeling with all of that. It's when you strip someone from who they are, where they come from, it, you, it's impossible for them to move forward. You're looking for ways to help people move forward. Do you think it's important that these stories are witnessed? It's not just in the telling, but it's in the, in the witnessing and having those stories on record. How important is that? I'm going to speak specifically about Memory House. Memory yeah. House is an experience. That's, yeah. that's the feedback we get. People walk in, they walk out and they're like, my goodness. I have no words. I don't know what to say. Mostly because they say at no point they felt like fingers were being pointed out and stuff. It was it wasn't about her side, his side, my side. That's not what it is. It's this experience of humanity. And so people walk out and they're like, "Oh my God!" We've used Memory House as a vessel. The different ways of making people experience people that connect differently too. And there's a need for different ways to tell those stories. And it, what needs to be kept in mind as well is who is telling the story. It's not always what, but who and how it's done, who is working on it and how they come together to do this. Absolutely. I, I naively was hoping that British Truth Commission was, was more for the families on the ground than it was for the political narrative above. And it sounds to me like you're saying that, I mean, actually the TRC is dealing with the national level, but the memory house is dealing with the grassroots level. Is that right? Do you? Do Absolutely. You... Right. That's exactly what it is. A memory house is literally doing the work at the grassroots level, almost like knocking on every single door and be like, okay, this is what happened. This is this. This is that. But it's also important to have this official record because the official record is making that the government is it's making this official. Absolutely. I was going to say, I mean, knocking on doors and recording the stories, it's also important in the, in the memory house that it's public, but then all, maybe that will force you. I mean, it went the other way around in the Gambia, but in Britain, I was thinking if the official channels will not set up a British Truth Commission for whatever reasons, including fear of reparations, it, perhaps we were thinking that we need to take those private stories that are happening in people's homes behind closed doors, make them public, and that way kind of hope to force a official level truth commission in the end does that sound like a realistic strategy from all your experience um i, I wouldn't say realistic i would just say necessary uh, even if there is an official truth commission these grassroots level initiatives are essential because you need to also remember when like a truth commission is done in some way that it fits a political agenda as well. If you look at South Africa, where the emphasis was put on, you know, rainbow nation, it was more about just sharing like facts. This is what happened, but it, it wasn't also about like accountability. So you, you have to remember like 
the truth commission is actually set up it's an official mechanism and it's set up by the official body which will be the government and so you need to have these grassroots movements on the side as well that will tackle all these gaps that will exist and also push back and offer check and balances you have to remember as well some groups are always overlooked always which groups do you would you say i, I mean it depends on the country the context and in the gambia i felt like women were very much when it came to the experience of the dictatorship reduced to just the i don't know i actually i shouldn't say just but reduced to sgbv sexual and gender-based violence because women experience the dictatorship in different ways because most of the people who were made to disappear in the gambia were men but it was the women who were left behind and their experience is like like mind-blowing so the groups are different groups certain marginalized group like people with disabilities in the uk it could be it would be certain groups that have are given a lot of attention especially groups who are more visible and vocal and then you'll have these powerful groups who are like well we're left behind and i attended a workshop on correcting the record it was fascinating uh, two of the presentations one of them was on mauritius and mauritius was actually the group that was speaking they actually said they were focusing on the rastafari people in mauritius who would be completely marginalized in telling the story of like slavery etc in mauritius i had I, I didn't know this that was fascinating right but then it has to be grassroots level and then you had to know another one which was sri lanka who they were talking about how you feminize as well these records that you bring in you you do some gender mainstreaming but very often people think when you talk about gender mainstreaming it's sgbv and it's not just sgbv obviously sgbv is a very important issue but that's not the only way that women experience dictatorship or you know experience events that's a very good point. So the more that they're, the more the grassroots are involved from a very early level with setting it up and even framing all the different groups so that no one's left out is really vital. And that brings up another, this big concept that is thrown around as if everybody understands it in the same way, justice. Can I ask you personally, or could, what, what might be justice for what happened to your father, for you and your family? I will only speak for myself. Again, because that idea of justice is very, people see it differently. From For me, justice is number one, ensuring that the story of what happened and who this person was is out there. Also, making those involved accountable I'm actually against the death penalty. Um, so it's not like I want them to, put to be put to death or anything. It's actually having them be tried, be given a fair trial, which is something they denied to so many other people, to see what they've denied to other people. And being put on trial and having to face the families, having to face this system that they tried to go around and the outcome I hope for is to be found guilty and to be have their freedom taken away from them. I am 
when you see the lens to which people go to to avoid having the freedom to to me i feel like that's really a way of making people sit and think about their actions did you face um the junglers that testified about what happened to your father were you at the truth commission on that day i wasn't and none of the family members were because um we were told the wrong date <laughs> like so we woke up and my phone was blowing up i had all these messages i'm so sorry and stuff and i was like what is going on what they and then people just don't know how to handle or just yeah. i think have no common sense sometimes and then you just get sent links and i'm like can you at least prep me first and yeah. say hey i need to take a call with you this or that but it's just like it's as if like it's like some disgusting feeding off someone's misery that sounds very traumatic it's just like all these messages and oh my goodness i am so sorry and stuff and i was like that doesn't help but okay would you have liked to face them when you mentioned now justice would be to see them on trial and and i know in south africa often um the victim and the perpetrators sat like opposite each other would you have wanted that opportunity I mean, face them in a court of law, not before the T the TRC, because before the TR before the TRC, I mean, they testified and they had learned their lines very well because all of them at the end, although it looked so not genuine, were like, "I'm so sorry and I apologize," because they're like, "Well, that's how I get a free pass." I mean, that's the message that's being sent, in my opinion, and I'm like, "No," and we're not talking. So it has to be also context specific. We're not talking about a country that had a civil conflict where different groups were pitted against one another and that we are like, look, we have to move forward so we have to come together as a nation. It was a certain group of people that terrorized the rest of the people. And that certain group of people that could be held accountable and it won't mean that 80% of the population is behind, behind bars. Right. And did they get amnesty for testifying? They did not. However, the impression that we get is that perhaps they were made to believe certain things and that's why they took part. Quite a number of them have asked for amnesty. And I'm like, why are you applying for amnesty? It means that you must have had a different understanding. And I think the way it was presented, it was like the truth will set you free. And I'm right. like, oh, come on. And especially when some of them, after testifying, were released from detention. Mm. It's all about perception, you know, how this was presented. So the, the Truth Commission's recommendations at the end are not legally binding, are they? Are you still hoping for justice, for, for justice, especially with Jame? Yes, then they're not legally binding, but they are from further discussions I've had, they it's that the essentially the government cannot ignore them. And also they kind of have to respond as to what if they accept or not what they've done, which they've they've responded, they've said they've accepted I mean they've accepted I think ninety-five percent of the recommendations. And yeah, I'm still hoping for justice. If I say we're never gonna get justice, then why am I doing why do I carry on, right? I, I think justice is attainable. And actually for me, 
doing otherwise is not an option. And I, 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 we've made it very clear as a NGOs of that our position is that this is not negotiable. So we're going to keep pushing for that. This is, we, you know, it's not like we come out of nowhere and be like, surprise, now we want justice. It's like, we've said this all along, even before the TRRC, because of the context in the Gambia, whereby it is important to, for people to understand that actions have consequences and you're going to be held accountable. Because it was that sense of not getting justice that actually allowed the dictatorship to cement itself and to flourish and to corrupt and destroy so many families and communities. It's an ongoing process. It's definitely not closure for you. It hasn't been. It's a, it's ongoing. It is ongoing. You know, you 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 even have the Liberians who is still the victims are still asking for justice. None of the individuals have been prosecuted in Liberia. They're still calling for justice. So different country, different context. You're still asking for that. In South Africa, all these years later, they're saying, actually, what happened to the reparations? They never got justice or reparations. How important are reparations, to, do you think, to the families you've spoken to? Reparations are very important for the collective. They add to this collective therapy that we need as a people at the community level or regional or national level, it's necessary, right? Because with all of that trauma, right? Hmm. That you have to get over. So reparations are important at that level. And then individually for the families, for the very important, like, because it's like something has completely been destroyed and you went through life carrying this trauma. And at least something is saying, I acknowledge that you have this trauma. Acknowledgement and is so important, isn't it? It is absolutely important. If you think about it, as humans, as children, children, all you do as a child is to be acknowledged. You want your parents to acknowledge you and children who don't get acknowledged act out. But can you imagine if you add the trauma to that? But then people don't understand like reparations, the different forms, symbolic reparations preparation how we tell the story statues i would necessarily leave uh, remove the statues i would add to the description what i'm thinking at the moment for the model for the trc grassroots one is i was very inspired by your memory house and the collecting of stories as sometimes without their faces because they may not want to share their faces but as podcasts and then putting them on qr codes on the relevant statue of the person that did do that damage so basically it's a people's truth commission that people can access on their phone that tells a different story and just as a way of getting their story out into the public space but protecting them at the same time what do you think of that i think that's absolutely brilliant i was inspired by your memory house a lot of that idea is coming from that you know it's about and also living in south africa where they were taking over public spaces after apartheid and making them into democratic spaces so it, yes. those, those statues they can stay there like you say but we need the stories around them and not the other narratives absolutely absolutely i think that's like you know brilliant and Maybe as well, they should do that in the museum as well with like all the artifacts. So this, that, 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 this artifact was taken and then read passages, actually, what would even be more powerful. 
passages from the journals of those who were involved you it, i mean the uk is very good at recording and like keeping all this information so you've got passages from people who involved like on x day we burnt down this village and on this day we'd like casually how they like we did this and we did that or like like these passages from actually those who committed them the recent records showing about the reparations of the slave owners has had impact because it's fact that it's written it's there that the slaves weren't compensated the slave owners were compensated i mean and i think also what happens is that some group of people listen to those who look exactly like them yes so if this is coming from then they would be like oh they're saying this is what they did so what do you have to say yeah so that's to come back and be like this is not true they were lying okay as you say, there are incredible records. I mean, I've wanted to do this for, since I came back from South Africa's Truth Commission, and it, they're never, it's never the right time. But actually, I just think if it happens from a grassroots level, we can do it now. And it's an interesting time for Britain because I think people are telling their stories in different ways. They're just, the next generation, they just will not be silenced anymore. Absolutely. Um, we've been talking about the past, the present, the future, and legacy. You're, you, you are an incredible legacy for your father. Do you think he'd be proud of the work that you're doing? Absolutely. I think he probably would be winking and be like, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> they were not expecting this. <laughs> it sounds like it was a family trait. Definitely. My cousin, who works on this with me as well, we sometimes we really laugh and we're like, oh my goodness, they're like, probably really like <laughs> this is fantastic like well yeah I may not be around anymore but guess what did not end there all the values he brought you up to believe in you're now living on a on a, doing amazing work thanks so much for speaking to me today I could speak for so much longer but I know you're very very busy but I really appreciate it and sharing your personal story I my best to connect Gambia to this bigger picture and stuff because even if you think about the why even Gambia ended up in a dictatorship, so that's a result of the colonial rule. It Absolutely. really is. Where do you start and when do you say we make ourselves accountable and they're accountable and stuff? And then you have a chunk of the population in the UK that can always like gaslighted or if they're not gaslighted, dismissed. And and how do you Continue, you grow up with resentment. So how do you come as a people and you move forward? Like, you know, just move on and stuff. And you're like, huh? Oh, yeah. How? You know? Um... I mean, everybody, I was very shocked by your story that when your father first disappeared, that people sort of avoided you and that through the process of telling your story, it was a way of exercising the, the sense of shame around it by bringing it into the light. Is that is that your experience with other families? It was just my way of saying, I'm going to own this and, you know, the burden should not rest on me. I put it back on you. You deal with this. I'm not going to deal with that shame. It's your problem. If you, and actually you should be ashamed of yourself for how you behaved. Well, if you put what you've just said back onto the British history, that's says quite a lot too, doesn't it? It, it, it does, but I, I, I think they're, they're more, well, in survival mode because they see it as if you acknowledge the stuff, then we disappear or we no longer hold the power. Yeah. I can't believe what you've been through and how you've made something 
so incredible from such a traumatic experience and how proud your father must be about the daughter he's created. You do what you can with what you have and yeah. that's it. Thanks to all our guests for sharing their personal stories, their experiences and their expertise. If you've enjoyed the programme, please follow, subscribe and share. And if you have future suggestions for interviewees, do email me at info at britishtruthcommission.com. Importantly, if you support the call for an official British Truth and Reconciliation Commission to be established, please sign and share the petition. The link is listed below. Thanks.